Every year, Peer Review Week honors the contributions of scientists, academics, and researchers in all fields for the hours of work they put into peer-reviewing manuscripts to ensure quality work is published. This year, the theme of Peer Review Week is the future of peer review. But what actually is peer review? This is Jen Sabo with the Oxford Comment. According to Oxford Languages, peer review is the evaluation of scientific, academic, or professional work by others working in the same field. In practice, this means manuscripts submitted to academic journals must go through a strict review from peers in the field to check the validity and novelty of the research. Additionally, this process aids the editor of the journal in determining if the manuscript is fit to publish in the journal with little or no revisions, or if it requires major edits. Peer review goes back to the beginning of research sharing, with the concept of peer review evident in ancient Greece. Modern peer review as we know it today is thought to have originated in the 17th or 18th centuries with the introduction of the first academic journals, though it has transformed massively with the increase in scientific papers published and the advent of the internet. Historically, editors would invite close colleagues to review, which limited inclusivity in the process. Additionally, familiarity with the authors of manuscripts could sway peer reviewers to review in a favorable or unfavorable light due to unconscious bias. Developments in reviewer recruitment and bias reduction work to minimize these issues, as we'll hear today from our guests. On today's episode, we are excited to welcome three of our colleagues, Laura Jose, Dr. Amanda Baim, and James Philpotts, to discuss with us current changes in academic publishing and what they will mean for the future of peer review. Our first guest is Laura Jose, a publisher in the Owned and Product Tower at OUP, here to talk to us about bias reduction in peer review. Laura, welcome. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, Jen. So I'm Laura. Um, I'm a publisher, as you said, in the journals team at OUP. So I manage a list of titles. And I also chair our diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility project team within journals. Thank you so much. So you are working toward a future where bias is diminished or eliminated within the peer review process. Can you explain some issues concerning bias in peer review in the past? Yeah, so I think the key issue with peer review is that reviewers are essentially asked for a subjective opinion on a paper. Um, and so reviewers in general do a fantastic job, but they're human and like all of us, they are subject to bias. Uh, sometimes that's been conscious bias in the past, but it can also be entirely unconscious. Uh, and it can include bias around the author's gender, race, ethnicity, bias against authors from a particular institution or region, or who have English as a second or other language. Um, it can also include status bias, so where papers from prominent researchers in a field are more likely to receive a positive review. Um, and just to give an example, there was a study published last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where they submitted a paper to a group of reviewers, and the paper had been co-written by a prominent researcher, whose name was very recognisable in the field, and an early career researcher, whose name was unlikely to be recognised. And they varied uh, whether they showed the name of the early career researcher, or the prominent researcher, or no name at all as the author. And more than 20% of reviewers recommended the paper be accepted when the more recognisable author's name was attached to it, compared with less than 2% for the comparatively unknown author's name. So you can see that that type of priming can have a real effect on peer review outcomes. 
Um, we're all subject to these kind of biases despite our best efforts. So it's important to try and address them from within the systems that we use for peer review to ensure that we're only publishing the best quality research. That's a really interesting example. Thank you. In what ways can the peer review model be used to help reduce bias? So I think in general, there's two approaches to tackling bias. Um, one is to try and minimize the information that the reviewer gets about the author. Um, so they don't have any basis for bias. Um, and we normally uh, refer to that as double anonymized peer review. It's double anonymized because the author doesn't know the reviewer and the reviewer doesn't know the author. All that they are basing their judgment on is the paper itself without any other information. Um, the second approach is actually to opt for transparency. Um, the basis of that is making reviews public so that any bias within them is obvious and it can then be challenged. Um, that's normally referred to as open peer review. And there's different versions of that. Um, it can vary as to whether the author and reviewer are aware of each other's identities, whether you make the reviewer's identity uh, public alongside their review, um, it varies as to how much of the review process is published, whether you, you know, you kind of log every review and then every change made as a result of that review, whether the review process takes place before or actually after publication, um, and whether reviews are invited post-publication from the wider community. But the key thing is that you want to make the process as transparent as possible. There's evidence that both of those can help reduce bias and there's really pros and cons for each approaches. There's been a few studies that have shown that actually reviewers prefer to be anonymous when given the choice um, because there can be fears of consequences when they're writing negative reviews about peers, uh, particularly if those peers are high status in the field and particularly if the reviewer is low status. So, for example, if they're an early career researcher, they haven't yet established their reputation. Um, and there's some evidence that the men are more likely to be willing to add their name to a review than women, um, perhaps because critical comments from women are often viewed more negatively than when they come from men. So there can be reluctance from reviewers to fully embrace that open peer review model. Um, there are cons to the double anonymized process as well. Um, particularly if you're working in a small field, reviewers might still be able to identify the author because they've seen them present the work at conferences, they've read preprints, etc. And actually, a recent study has shown that AI models can be used to identify the author of paper by comparing the referencing and writing patterns with papers that are available online. So there's some questions as to whether we can ever really make a paper anonymous. All that being said, um, the British Ecological Society actually recently finished a three-year study of double anonymized peer review, and they found that it did have a real effect on bias. Um, specifically, double anonymizing uh, reviews increased the positive reviews for papers with authors from lower and middle-income countries and with English as a second or other language. Um, and so they're now planning to adopt double anonymized review across their titles. Um, I have to say that, you know, I come from a humanities background myself, where double anonymized review is pretty common. So that's the approach that I'm personally a bit more comfortable with. Uh, but we have journals using both models and you can combine the two. You can use a double anonymized review model, but then make the reviews themselves public. And I think journals are, are still experimenting and still doing studies on which is really the best approach. Interesting. So you mentioned 
you're in the humanities background and double anonymized is pretty common there. Is it common in medical and science journals as much, or it's mainly on the humanities side or just kind I of depends on the journal? I think it's less common in STEM subjects, but um, STEM journals have, are really experimenting with open peer review. So that tends to be, I think, the, the model of preference there. But I mean, having said that, um, the British Ecological Society are moving to double anonymized peer review. Uh, the Institute of Physics Publishing are moving to double anonymized peer review. So, you know, I think um, there are journals across all fields that are really experimenting with the type of models and um, really trying to get a sense of what works best within their subject area and for their authors. Okay, that makes sense. What are some tools that can be used to reduce bias in peer review? So I think the, the main intervention we suggest would be double anonymized or open peer review or a combination of both. Um, but another kind of quite basic thing is that it's really helpful to provide reviewers with clear guidance on what they should consider when reviewing a paper. Um, some titles even provide a set framework for judging a paper with separate criteria to rate against so that it's, uh, you know, you're giving a real objective framework for review. Um, even when that, that's not appropriate, um, giving reviewers a sense of the key criteria that they should judge against um, is really important. Um, even when that isn't appropriate, giving uh, a sense of the key criteria that a reviewer should be judging against is really important. Um, and another important aspect is who's doing the reviewing. So making sure that you have a wide reviewer base um, that reflects the authorship of the journal and the diversity within the field, um, ensuring that a paper is reviewed uh, by people from different backgrounds and different perspectives can help protect against biases and blind spots that can uh, come in with a more homogenous reviewer base. That's a great tip for editors to have a diverse peer review base. Um, so on that note, what else can a reviewer or an editor keep in mind as they review manuscripts in terms of bias reduction? So it's really important to keep that potential for bias in mind. Um, studies have shown that the more conscious you are of potential bias, the less likely you are to succumb to it. Um, and a lot of the advice on minimising bias in, in other contexts, for example, when interviewing job applicants, um, can be really helpful here. And often that's around making sure that you have a clear set of criteria um, that you have decided in advance that you can rate the candidate or paper in this case against, rather than just relying on initial impressions. So again, you're trying to make the process as objective as possible. Great, thank you. And looking ahead, what do you see happening in the future for bias reduction in peer review? So I think publishers and editors are increasingly concerned about ensuring that their journals are providing an equitable service for authors. And we know that a lot of groups have historically been and actually currently are underrepresented in academia and in publishing. Um, and ensuring a fair and unbiased peer review process is just part of trying to redress that. OUP is a member, along with um, most major publishers, of the Joint Commitment for Action on Inclusion and Diversity in Publishing, which was founded by the Royal Society of Chemistry in 2020. And one of the main initiatives that the Joint Commitment has been working on is capturing demographic data from authors and reviewers, so we can get a better picture of the communities around our journals, who's submitting, who's reviewing, who makes up the editorial teams. 
Um, we started to collect that data on one of our main submission systems, and we hope to start collecting it on the other this year. Um, it's required a lot of development work from our submission system partners in order to ensure that the data is collected anonymously. I can't be seen by anyone processing the papers, so it doesn't in any way influence decisions on individual articles. At the moment, all we have is kind of very top level data. So we can see um, the breakdown of demographics in anyone who's interacted with the journal, um, who's logged onto the submission system. Um, but we still need some development work to get to a point where we're able to break down that data into roles. So, for example, we can see who among the respondents were logging in as a reviewer or were logging in as an author. Um, and then ideally, we'd want to be able to link that to outcomes. So, for example, you could see the percentage of women within authors submitting to a journal and then within authors accepted by that journal. Um, and so you'd expect those two then to be roughly in line over time. And if there's discrepancies, you could then investigate further and that might perhaps indicate bias, um, which you'd then be able to act to address. So if we're able to collect that kind of high level data over time, we should be able to get a really good sense of where bias might be coming in and then judge whether our attempts at addressing it are actually effective. Um, so that is a development that I'm really looking forward to. Great. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us. Thanks, Jen. I've really enjoyed it. Our second guest is Dr. Amanda Baim, Scientific Managing Editor for JNCI, Journal of the National Cancer Institute and JNCI Cancer Spectrum. She works on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, or DEIA, initiatives at the journals, and is here to talk about how these types of initiatives affect peer review. Dr. Baim, welcome. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, Jen. So um, I've been with OUP as an editor for almost 13 years. I also have a PhD in cellular and molecular pathology, and I did cancer research before becoming an editor. So I also have this some experience as a reviewer myself when I was a PhD student and a postdoctoral fellow. Great. So you bring a great background to this, having been a reviewer yourself. Yeah. Can you talk broadly about the historical models of peer review that limited opportunities for diverse reviewers to take part in the system? So it, unfortunately, it's been well known that researchers from emerging regions are underrepresented in the peer review process. But fortunately, now publishers, editors, and societies are thinking more than ever before about how to conduct the review process inclusively. So for example, we have new tools, guidance, and studies on how to conduct the peer review process with DEI and A in mind. So building off that, what sorts of ways can DEIA initiatives be included in the peer review process now? There are, there are a lot of ways. Um, one of the things that journals can do is collect um, demographic information that can be used as benchmarks for their journals. And they collect it from reviewers, authors, and editors. And this can be used to affect change within the journal. This, this should really be used as a tool. It should never be used to make decisions um, for editorial reasons. Um, but this is, this is really a tool. Um, another tool that can be used is reviewer locator tools. These are great because they use um, AI technology and that can be used to help diversify the reviewer pool. 
Um, another thing is to um, diversify the editorial board itself. And that really helps bring in new faces, new perspectives, and new views into how journals are run. And that trickles down through the peer review process itself. That's really interesting about the AI locator tools that you mentioned. Does that get as specific as what university researchers are from, or is it more so used to identify which country or continent? You can use it for a lot of different things, and different tools have different capabilities. Some of them are able to look at geography. Some of them will look at universities. Um, some of them you can actually use to um, focus down as far as career stage, because if you look at if someone is published within only the last five years, then you're looking at someone who's in the, in the early part of their career versus someone who's published more prolifically within the past, you know, 15 to 20 years or longer, then you know that that's someone who's um, had a much longer career. So because whenever we look at DEI in particular, you're looking not only at race, ethnicity, geography, and um, sex, you're also looking at career stage is also another element of that. In your role, what are some of the struggles that you encounter as a scientific managing editor and how can peer reviewers help? So basically the, the biggest struggle right now is to get reviews for manuscripts. It's something that all journals are experiencing at the moment, and it's something that we refer to as reviewer fatigue. I think the current wave is a byproduct of a few things, including mostly the surge in submissions that all journals experienced in 2020 during COVID. It's due to the old ways of doing things where editors will invite the people they know or the established persons in the field so that the same people are getting the invitations repeatedly over time and they just get tired of reviewing. They just don't have the time, they don't have the energy for it. So because of this, expanding the reviewer pool is essential and that leads back to reviewer locator tools. Um, they can be very helpful. It allows the editors to identify new and qualified individuals who may not have otherwise had the opportunity to review um, because they're not in the established database that the journal's using. Um, reviewers themselves can help this situation um, by responding to invitations when they do receive them. Don't just ignore them because you don't have the time to review. You can offer suggestions of colleagues who you know are qualified to review the manuscript, and the journal can contact them, and then they can review. This helps expand the reviewer pool and you're giving somebody else the opportunity to review. Also, journals are now allowing mentored reviews as an option. So if that's something that you would like to do, then you can read the invitation letter and see if there's a policy on it. And if not, then just reach out to the editorial office and ask if mentored reviews are allowed. It's a great opportunity to train a mentee and let them learn how to review. And then after a few of these mentored reviews, they can become um, a reviewer on their own merit. Can you explain a little bit more about the mentored reviews? So is that you pair an early career reviewer with an established reviewer? Is that how that one works? Yeah, or it could be a student too. Um, I know as a as a PhD student I and as a postdoctoral fellow, I had really great mentors who, whenever they were asked to review a paper, would have us work on the review with them. So it 
really gives you the opportunity to learn as a student or a trainee to learn how to review. And it's an opportunity that not everyone has, unfortunately. So if you don't have a mentor that that offers that, then it's very hard to find ways to review and to gain that experience because you're not automatically in a journal database. That makes sense. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So in the future, given these struggles that are going on now with reviewer fatigue and a limited pool of reviewers, how do you envision an ideal peer review model working, keeping in mind those DEI&A initiatives? So personally, I see double anonymous peer review model as kind of the ideal. I think that removing any identifying information during review helps limit bias from the review process. And there have been many studies now that have proven this. Um, And going back, the use of reviewer locator tools as a standard part of peer review would be excellent so that finding reviewers moves away from the who you know mentality for reviewer invitations that many editors fall into. And again, many of these have filters so you can limit your search results to help diversify the reviewer pool. Um, Another thing is that I think more reviewer trainee programs, the standard practice would be amazing too, so that anyone who wants to learn how to review has the opportunity. Again, not everyone has that great mentor who takes the time to teach them how to write a good review and also then offer the opportunities to co-review with them. So there are some programs out there right now that journals and publishers offer so that you can learn how to review and sometimes even get a certificate at the end. And they're really great options. And finally, is there anything that you want peer reviewers to know? So I want peer reviewers to know how much they're appreciated. Reviewing is ultimately a form of community service. And their time is so valuable, and that's not something that journals take for granted. I know we at JNCI and JNCI Cancer Spectrum are extremely grateful for every review that is turned in because they have strengthened every paper that we've considered, whether it was accepted or rejected. So we sincerely appreciate every review. Thank you so much, Amanda. We really appreciate it. Sure. Our final guest today is James Philpotts the Director of Content Transformation and Standards, who serves as an OUP representative for the National Information Standards Organization, or NISO. NISO recently released a document on standard terminology for peer review, so we asked James about its impact. James, welcome. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, Jen. Uh, Thanks for having me along. My name is James Philpotts, and I'm Director of Content Transformation and Standards here at Oxford University Press. My group are part of our central publishing and content operations, supporting academic, ELT and education, so all three of our divisions. Our role covers the governance and application of content standards that's right across the range of our publishing, and that includes the models that we use to structure our content, which is something that's really crucial for digital publishing, the appropriate tools and solutions that we use to manage that content, as well as process standards, such as how we securely store our published content and manage our archives. As part of that role, I also get to work really closely with some of the key organizations in our industry, which are working to advance the development of those standards, practices, um, interoperability, and long-term sustainability in scholarly communications. And one such organization is the National Information Standards Organization, 
NISO, which has recently announced the publication of its standard terminology for peer review. Great, thank you so much. So why is it important to have a standard terminology for peer review? The peer review processes are really critical to scholarly integrity by helping to ensure that research outcomes are presented through uh, publication in journals in a valid way and that quality standards are maintained. So as such, they form one of the real kind of key pillars of scholarly communications. And yet there hasn't been any clarity on the terminology that's used for various peer review stages or processes. At the same time, there have been quite a few experiments in recent years with all sorts of different uh, and innovative models for peer review. And that can mean, for example, that there can be a bit of a lack of transparency. But even where an individual journal's peer review model is aiming for openness, uh, it can be a little bit opaque. And it means it's not at all straightforward for researchers to compare those processes across journals. There's just been so much variety in this space. So in short, having a standard terminology is a really important part of helping to ensure just greater transparency and openness across peer review. That makes sense. Thanks. So what are some of the major changes in the document on standard terminology for peer review and how does it compare to what is used currently? So at least as far as I'm aware, there haven't really been any standards before. So this is just quite exciting in itself and a pretty major change to try and establish a, a standard uh, across scholarly publishing. And that's not to say that there haven't been some really widely recognised terms used to describe different peer review processes and stages. But where there has been some regularly used terminology, it's developed quite organically. And that means then there hasn't necessarily been clarity on what specific terms mean in different contexts um, or if processes are really kind of comparable between journals. So it's just kind of developed uh, over time rather than anyone saying this particular term means this particular stage or this particular process. Um, so the new NISO standard terminology for peer review now provides that clarity, which is great as well as avoiding some of the things that have crept in over the years, such as um, some ableist terminology um, that's been um, previously part of kind of common jargon. So for instance, talking about types of blind review, which is, um, which is not really appropriate. So this new terminology really kind of replaces that, sets a standard and, and puts us in a much better place in terms of good, uh, good publishing terminology across the board. But as I say, it's pretty, it's a, a new thing so it's not really major changes so much as something completely fresh. Right. So before this, then, were different journals using different terms that meant the same thing? Yeah, either different terms that meant the same thing or when they were describing their processes, they were using uh, quite opaque terminology. So you could go to a journal site and read that they were doing uh, double unwise peer review. Well, great, that's really good. But what does it actually mean and maybe the description for one journal it looks like it's nicely comparable to another one because they're both using the same term well that's great but are they using it in quite the same way is it really clear what exactly that means so not just for researchers but also for other participants in that process whether they're members of the editorial office or the reviewers themselves do they really know what they're actually um, taking part in what does that process look like so having something that's a standard uh, really helps. It means that shorthands can be used, so people can use those same kind of terms, and we can all understand mutually what they mean, rather than having to assume based on sort of past or inferred knowledge uh, what it might mean that they're trying to describe. Okay. 
Yes, it sounds like it used to be somewhat more confusing, and this will help bring some clarity to the process. So yeah. on, on that note, what is the impact of the NISO guidelines to the average researcher or average peer reviewer? So the actual impact of these guidelines is definitely not to fundamentally change the ways in which researchers are approaching publishing or peer reviewers are approaching their role in the process. Uh, the aim is not to disrupt their work at all, but just provide that clarity around processes and terminology that's used by different journals and different publishers. Um, and as I mentioned, that both helps in terms of ease of comparison, but also just in terms of elucidating for researchers what they can expect of a peer review process uh, and the information about that which will be associated with their article. So when the article is published, it will list um, particular stages of peer review um, and dates that are associated with them. So again, what exactly do those mean? It helps make that a lot clearer. Um, and for the peer reviewers, it helps explain their own role and contributions to that process. As I mentioned, peer review is such a critical part of scholarly communications that being able to understand exactly what it is they're contributing and how and where that fits in, I think really provides a lot kind of um, better information to peer reviewers about their part of that process for the publishing overall in a journal. Thank you. Um, and on the other side of the publishing process, how do the guidelines impact editors or managing editors in their working relationships with peer reviewers? Right. So again, the impact for editors and managing editors here are really in terms of clarity. So in, in this case, in particular around interactions between different roles in the process, such as uh, with the reviewers themselves, and to what degree identities are transparent between those different roles. So this may not be a change in the ways of working for editorial offices, but it helps make sure that those roles and the interactions and transparency are really clearly understood. So I guess to make that a little bit more kind of real with an actual example, um, the guidelines make it clear that if a double anonymized process is being followed, reviewer identities are not being made visible to authors, author identities are not being made visible to reviewers, but reviewer and author identities are visible to the decision-making editor. So just saying that, out in the section on identity transparency in these guidelines means that the shorthand when you just simply say it's double anonymized is much clearer and can be mutually understood if you're looking between different journals and they both say they're double anonymized you know exactly what that means in terms of roles and how transparent those identities are to different parties in that process the guidelines also really bring home the importance of information that relates to processes and dates as well as those roles uh, so with the guidelines now available, editorial offices might want to review and think about adjusting the terminologies that they're using. And that would be potentially both internally within their own processes, but also in their external communications to make sure that the terms they're using actually align with the terms that are in this, uh, in this new guidance. So although the guidelines are just the standard terminology and not setting out any specific recommendation in terms of a model that should be followed, just kind of going through that process and thinking about, well, what does it mean in terms of these roles? What is it that we're really kind of setting out? What is it that's clear to our research community? Um, that might trigger some thoughts about the peer review process they're using overall and the kind of appropriate levels of interaction and transparency that they, they want for their title. So I think, as I say, although no models being recommended as a result of these, just that kind of thought process of working through a recommended standard and thinking about the terminology that's being used and what that really means to the participants in the process uh, really um, perhaps brings some clarity of thinking for editorial offices. Great. And you mentioned um, that that would impact 
external communications or communications with authors and reviewers. Um, so would you recommend editors go through and just double check that they're not using any of those ableist terms and making sure they're using the new terms? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if there's any terminology which um, could be outdated or uh, misconstrued, then editors will want to absolutely review and make sure that um, they're setting out uh, exactly what processes their journals are following in the clearest um, and most open way possible, and that that's as inclusive as possible too. So there's probably pieces the editorial offices might want to just double check against these standards, even if they don't think that it's going to change anything for them themselves. It's definitely worth taking a read of it, having a look at the guidance that they've got already, and just having a having a bit of a think about whether they're as clear as they can and should be. And what changes do you hope or expect to see in the future for peer review, whether related to these guidelines or peer review as a whole? That's a pretty big question. Um, I guess in terms of my hopes, I've got just quite straightforward ones, really. Um, and that's that this terminology is widely adopted to help make peer review processes as readily understandable as possible and more transparent. It's really important that journals are able to follow the most appropriate review processes for them, their research community, and the expectations of the readership in their discipline area. Um, and that will likely include continued diligence to eliminate the potential for biases. And I'd expect probably some further experimentation with very open and community-based review models as well. And no doubt re new models for review will continue to evolve to meet those kind of requirements and expectations in different uh, research communities. And as the way that I see it is that just really strengthens the need for clear and shared terminology rather than in any way diminishing that. So the more experimentation, the more variety there's around these models, the more important is that there's um, shared and straightforward terminology that people can understand and really know what makes journal A the same or different from journal B in terms of their peer review processes. So that's a quite sort of, um, I guess, quite a straightforward hope, you know, uh, adopting these kind of uh, Guidelines, I think, is a, is a pretty kind of key thing and will just help everyone who's involved in the process. I also think in the future, I'd expect we'd see much more regarding the use of machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence in peer review processes. So there are already some pretty sophisticated tools and processes in use as part of editorial um, office processes. So, for example, the detection of plagiarism or image manipulation and for reference checking, that kind of thing. So I think we might see more of those kind of tools either being combined with or helping to facilitate peer review processes. And that means that transparency about their use is going to be really key uh, for maintaining trust in scholarly publishing um, processes and the whole kind of ecosystem around peer review. So there's a lot to be offered by these kind of tools. Um, as I say, already quite a few in use in other parts of editorial office processes. But um, as those perhaps get combined or help peer reviewers in, in fulfilling their role, we just need to be really transparent about that too. So that might be something where um, either this standard or alternative um, future kind of standards that develop might have an area to look at. I guess slightly more prosaically, and speaking as someone who's particularly interested in data processes and standards for scholarly communications, I'd really hope to see this guidance be extended beyond journals. So for example, to preprints, uh, conference proceedings, and research data sets. 
I think that would be really helpful. We've just been talking about uh, this guidance in the context of journals really to date, but there's definitely a lot of kind of similarities in terms of processes and things that these guidelines could be extended to as well, I think, um, for those areas. And also machine readability of this terminology, which I think is already uh, one of the future goals of this initiative, uh, would also be very welcome. On that AI point, in the future, do you expect if AI tools are being used for peer review, there would be a line in a paper that, or at the, the starter end of a paper that would say AI tools used in the peer review process or some kind of way to indicate that? I think it would just be a very different process from peer review. So um, maybe there's an AI type of review, but that's not by nature peer review, right? Peer review is bringing that academic diligence and understanding to a paper that artificial intelligence is in no way set up to to replace. But there could be a place for some automated review to help pull out particular uh, areas that a reviewer might want to focus on or um, if it looks like there's some inconsistencies or um, as I say perhaps tie in some of the things that already happen in editorial office processes to automatically uh, check references that kind of thing you could think about how that might pull in if those kind of processes were being applied I'd absolutely expect that there needs to be a very very clear statement saying that that's the case um, so that authors are aware of it going into the process, not just, you know, after it might have happened. And also that people are aware that some judgments have been made based on um, AI augmented, perhaps would be a way of putting it, AI augmented processes. But the very first word of peer review about it being peers, I think, means that, you know, you can't, wouldn't want to um, aim to replace that anyway with, uh, with AI. There's that scientific understanding or, you know, whatever the discipline might be, a scholarly understanding um, that needs to be applied to the to the research, and that's something that's not readily replaced, and we shouldn't be aiming to do so. Um, part of the kind of peer part of peer review is that if um, journals research, you're talking about primary research being published, right? So it's kind of by its nature right towards the edge of our understanding for a particular discipline. And that's why we're kind of publishing a lot of material. Obviously, there are reviews and things that are published as well, but often you'll be having kind of cutting edge research that's being published. AI is based on looking at and being trained on past publications, past information that's out there. So it can absolutely help in terms of picking up trends or picking up where there might have been plagiarism or where something may not be as novel as it appears. And so that'll be a really helpful kind of pointer potentially for reviewers to look at to to have that information to hand, some kind of prompts from an AI may be helpful in that process. But by the very nature of it being primary research, uh, an artificial intelligence is not uh, best placed to make a judgment on whether that's good research or cutting edge or novel or not. That's something that absolutely needs to be done by a human. That's a great point, certainly. Thank you so much, James. We really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. We once again want to thank our guests, Laura Jose, Amanda Bame, and James Philpotts for speaking with us about the future of peer review for Peer Review Week. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comet premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comet wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. 
Finally, we of course want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comet for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 87 was produced by Stephen Filippi and me, Jen Sabo. Thank you for listening.